I'm Barry Weiss. This is Honestly. The short form is general, but you can call me Bill. General? Yeah. Isn't that weird? It's so weird. Well, if you want to take a moment, I'll just explain it to you. Americans don't understand language. So the original term attorney general is from the Norman French, and the word general is an adjective. It means the general attorney. And the British carried that over, obviously, because of the Normans. All the English-speaking countries call the attorney general attorney, except the United States call him general, which is the adjective, (laughs) because they think it's some rank. (laughs) I'm not, you know, and I'll go with the flow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I, I won't call you attorney and I will not call you general, but I'll just okay. call you Bill. I'll call you Bill. Yeah. And today, a conversation with Attorney General William Barr. William Barr was sworn in on Thursday for his second stint as U.S. Attorney General. Barr replaces Acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker. The Senate voted 54 to 45 on Thursday to confirm the 68-year-old, mostly along party lines. Bill Barr is only the second person in American history to lead the Justice Department twice. First, under George H.W. Bush, and then again, three decades later, under arguably the most divisive president in American history. Today, we talk about all of it, why he decided to take the job, his time in a chaotic Trump White House, Russiagate, whether he regrets how he handled the Mueller investigation, and what finally pushed him to break away from the president. We also talk about January 6th, the recent raid on Mar-a-Lago, whether he thinks Trump will be indicted, and what he calls Donald Trump's extortion of the GOP. Later on, we discuss the rise in violent crime under his tenure, why he sees militant secularism as the biggest threat to freedom, and what makes him optimistic in the face of American decline. So without further ado, Attorney General Bill Barr. Attorney General Barr, thank you so much for talking with me. I'm happy to be here, Barry. Thanks for having me on. I want to begin with a quote from your wife, Christine. The left and the press have lost their minds over Trump, and Trump is his own worst enemy. Any sacrifice you make will be wasted on this man. That's what she told you in 2019 before you joined the Trump administration. Obviously, you did it anyway, which is why we're here to talk. But was she right? Yeah, she, she as usual, was, was dead on. You know, the left has lost their mind over Trump. Uh, Trump derangement syndrome is a, is a real thing. But, you know, Trump is his own worst enemy and, and has provoked a lot of the venom. And, uh, in fact, he's incorrigible. He doesn't take advice from people and he does his own thing. And you're not going to teach an old dog new tricks. So I was under no illusion when I went in. But I felt, you know, there was a chance he would rally to the office and be more disciplined in his uh, behavior, and also recognize that the presidency is a unique office, which is not only a political leader, but the head of state representing the whole nation. And he would rise to the occasion, and he didn't. And I felt he could have, and I said to him when I went in in 2020, uh, near the beginning of the year, that I thought he was going to lose the election unless he adjusted a little bit, and he didn't. And uh, he continued to be self-indulgent and petty and uh, turned off key constituencies that made the difference in the election. 
When you were offered the job by the Trump administration to replace Jeff Sessions as AG, you had already had a very long career. You had been in the CIA. You had worked as attorney general under George H.W. Bush. By 2019, you're in a private practice. You're looking forward to your retirement. So why do it? Over the advice of your wise wife, what caused you to say yes to this really obviously difficult job? I ran out of people to throw between me and the president to suggest that that they, that they you know, you designate somebody else. But look, I, I had to make the decision, am I going to even talk to the guy? Because I'm not going to talk to him unless at the end of the day I'd be willing to accept it. And initially I wasn't. Um, it meant complete disruption of my life and I was where I wanted to be at that stage in my life. But I did feel that a Republican administration was important during this period. I hadn't supported him originally, but once he got the nomination, I supported him. And uh, I felt he was following good, sound policies generally. And I felt that he was being unfairly treated. I mean, one of the ironies about Trump is that he was a victim of, of Russiagate. That was very unjust. It, it really uh, cast a pall over his entire administration and uh, was distracting. And I felt they were trying to hound him from office. And uh, I was very suspicious of it from the very beginning. I, I saw these institutions that I love, the Department of Justice and the FBI, being battered because of this effort to use the criminal justice process to accomplish a political objective. And I felt at the end of the day of the people who were being discussed and who could get confirmed, I felt I could help stabilize things and uh, deal with Russiagate and, uh, you know, keep the department and the FBI on course. And so I agreed to do it. Let's talk about Russiagate for a moment. How do you understand how it took hold? The idea that Donald Trump was a compromised agent of Moscow, that there were these deep connections between his circle and Russian intelligence, or that the Trump campaign had even colluded with the Russians. How do you understand why or how these ideas took hold? I, I think they start, you know, I, my concern was, and I think, you know, information has now come out that I think supports the, the proposition that it really got going because. It was a political uh, ploy by the Clinton administration uh, to try to hang Putin around Trump's neck and claim they were in cahoots. And I, I never thought there was any basis. My personally, I was skeptical there was any basis for it because you know if the Russians did apparently a hack and dump, they stole emails and they dumped them out in the public. That is the ex really the extent of what happened of, of any significance. And that is their, you know, that's a stock and trade. I mean, that's what they do all the time. And they don't collude with uh, people and they don't have to collude in order to do that. So it never made sense to me that they would collude or, or, or get Americans involved in that operation. Uh, they also, uh, Putin had his own reasons for despising Hillary Clinton. He despised her. And uh, so I thought he didn't need any other motivation to go in and uh, screw around with the 2016 election. The things that Trump were, was being accused of, the policy positions he were taking, you know, had, had a constituency within the Republican Party for a while. I mean, Kissinger 
had talked you know, before the election, the 2016 election, about the idea of Finlandizing Ukraine and, and, and recognizing Russia had deep interests in Crimea. So th- these were not wacky ideas, and they, don't nece- they didn't necessarily mean that he was sort of in the pocket of the Russians. These ideas, right, that Trump mm-hmm. was working with Putin, these were ideas that many supposedly serious people endorsed every single night on television and in our newspapers. Like, these were mainstream. Right. Why? Well, my, my perception was that before the election, there was, there was maybe a smaller group that gave them any credence and tried to help give them traction. But actually, the mainstream media didn't pay that much attention to it. Uh, and to the extent there was an effort to get it out before the election, it really sort of fizzled. It was really after the election that the uh, mainstream media went hammer and tong after this story, which was curious because after the election, the dossier and the other stuff they had been relying on had collapsed. And, and if, you know, it was pretty clear not too long after the election that this whole thing was a farce. And yet that's when both the FBI doubled down on it and the mainstream media kicked in. And I've, and I've always thought that that was very strange. And I've wondered, you know, they, 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 were, they never expected Trump to become president. And then when they looked back uh, at the election, they said, oh, maybe the FBI and the media helped do in Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, with the, treat, the way they treated the, the email thing. And this was essentially to make up for it, try to take down Trump. I've been surprised that the mainstream media and the people who fan this to the point of hysteria uh, haven't come come back and say, yeah, you know, there was a big lie in 2016 that was perpetuated and which has hurt the country, distorted our politics, distorted our foreign policy uh, throughout the Trump administration. And it was it was unjust. It was wrong. And we made a mistake. Very few have come out to say that, if any. I mean, not many. So as the mainstream media is hammering this story, the FBI is getting to work. And I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but Mm -hmm. the short of it is this. And you correct me if I've gotten something wrong. Robert Mueller, the former head of the FBI and a longtime friend of yours, oversees this investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. And after a two-year investigation that sort of felt like it would never end, Mueller concluded the following. Yeah, Russia did interfere in our election to favor Trump. Yeah, the Trump campaign probably benefited from that interference. But no, Trump was not a Russian agent. And on the question of obstruction of justice, Mueller sort of neither accused Trump nor exonerated him, which left the situation in a kind of cultural limbo. And what followed— Following the Mueller report was a series of memos and testimonies and letters and press conferences and subcommittees and more memos. It would take many hours to summarize the sequence of events. But throughout this entire ordeal, there was a lot of criticism from the left, both criticism directed at Mueller for not making a clear conclusion on the question of obstruction of justice, but also criticism directed at you for what they felt was mischaracterizing the findings of the investigation in a way that favored Trump. Do you have any regrets about how you handled the Mueller report? No, I don't. I do exactly the same as I did. And I I think people have to understand that Mueller threw this hot potato into the political 
process and into the body politic, which is not come to raise the question of obstruction, which I thought was nonsense. And more than a year before, I had said, was telling people this whole idea that he's keeping the thing going, looking at obstruction. And then uh, you know, every time Trump gets mad and, and does something stupid, he wants to look at that as another possibility of obstruction. The bottom line was there was no obstruction. The uh, Mueller was allowed to finish. There was no effort to interfere with Mueller. And in fact, the White House gave him all the, the documents uh, and allowed people to, to serve as witnesses. Why did Robert Mueller do that? That's someone who you have deep respect for, that you have a 30-year friendship with. Why did he handle it the way that he did? I don't think he was on top of his game. I think he made some very serious errors. For one thing, he the whole reason Rod Rodenstein brought him in is to have someone authoritative deal with it uh, because it was important once this thing was raised to have someone speak to the country and, and tell them what he'd found. And uh, he goes out and he hires partisan Democrats to make up his investigative team, which under you know, means half the country is going to be suspicious from the very beginning. It defeated the whole purpose of of naming him. And then, instead, you know, I think it was pretty evident within a, you know within a few months of him taking the position that there had been no collusion. But instead of stopping it at that point and letting the country move on, he took two instances which clearly on their face were not obstruction and which even his final report doesn't try to argue were obstruction. And that is the firing of Comey and, and, the, and a comment he made, an off-the-cuff comment he made to Comey that, gee, I wish there was a way of letting, you know, I hope you see clear to, to, to let the Flynn thing go. And, and that those were obstructions. And using those two to bootstrap the rest of the two-year investigation into obstruction, uh, which he wasn't ultimately willing to, to say there was. Now, I asked him, I said, look, when you give me the report, you, ha- you have to sanitize it so I'm in a position to release it as soon as you give it to me. Because if there's a delay between the time you give me the report and the time I can make it public under the law, I have to, there are things legally I cannot make public, like grand jury information. If you don't take those out, I'm going to be sitting there quietly for a few weeks and a lot of damage can be done to the country, the stock market, our foreign adversaries. People are going to wonder if the president's going to jail. So you have to give it to me in a form in which I can release it. Redacted, in other words. Right, redacted. And did he say he would? Yes. He said he understood. And I said this was the most important thing as far as I was concerned, not having a delay between the time I receive it and the time I can let it go. And lo and behold, they show up with a report with no redactions in it. Instead, on the top of every page, it cannot be released with grand jury, with the grand jury material, this may contain grand jury material. Do you think that the reason that was done was that so the egg would be on your face? I don't know. I don't know why it was done. It was inexplicable to me. They knew very well what I needed, and so so what I had to do was while I took three weeks to redact the report, that was the estimate. Uh, go into t- high gear to redact the report, but tell the people what the bottom line was that there was going to be no indictment of the president, and therefore there was no collusion. He didn't reach a decision on obstruction. I said I took the sentence from his conclusion and said, well, he didn't find obstruction. He didn't exonerate him. I put that in the letter. And then I said, however, I am making the decision based on the report, and I don't find there was obstruction. And then I explained why I didn't find there obstruction. So half the letter is me explaining my decision, not Mueller's decision. And uh, I thought that that was the responsible thing to do. And I think 
people who are acting in good faith can scour that letter and not see anything misleading in it. The other thing I haven't ever really understood what the what the the thrust of this complaint is because we got the report out a couple of weeks later, and if the if the stuff was so damaging, why didn't Congress impeach him at that point? There was crickets. So uh, you know the idea that I affected the thing by by saying that you know summarizing the report using his language and then saying but I did reach a decision. I, I, I think it, it's it was the left wing throwing a tantrum because Mueller didn't deliver the goods as far as they were concerned. If the firing of FBI Director James Comey wasn't obstruction, how would you describe it? Do you think that it was unwise? I would describe it as something that should have happened long before. Uh, Everyone I knew uh, in Republicans and and Justice Department circles, including me, was advising Trump at the very beginning of his administration and Sessions to fire Comey before we even knew Comey's role in Russiagate. And it's because Comey, uh, in my opinion, has some of the personality characteristics that can lead to to people being like J. Edgar Hoover, that, that, you know, that uh, they they run the FBI according to their personal whim. So I thought it was dangerous. I thought he should go. But do you think that at the time Trump did it, sort of at the height of the Mueller investigation, that it was unwise to do so then? Um, you know, there, better late than never, I, I guess I thought. But uh, I'm not sure there ever would have been a good time once, once Mueller was named and got going. During the Trump years, Bill, the, the phrase, the deep state, went mainstream. And we both know there are a lot of conspiracy theories that we don't need to get into. I want to ask you, though, is any part of that idea true, that there is a deep state? Yes. I mean, I think it's overdone, uh, you know, as many conspiracy theories are. uh, But uh, there definitely are people. There are more people in the government, as there are in many of our institutions, who are very willful and are willing to sacrifice the values and processes of the institution in order to achieve some higher, what they think is a higher political end. So there are pockets of them in the Department of Justice and and unfortunately some in the FBI. But I would just say, you know, people always say, what do we do about the FBI? What do we do? The FBI is like all our institutions. I say, I wish the FBI was the extent of the problem. There's, there, all the government institutions are generally infected by this. But all our other institutions, the medical profession, journalism, science, are being politicized. Institutions are means to an end. You know, the justice system is our, is a, has certain processes and values we follow in order to try our best to achieve justice. It's a means of achieving justice, but we have processes that we have to adhere to, you know, due process and other things, evidence. Same with journalism. You know, journalism has certain disciplines that it tries to use because ultimately they're trying to present what's objectively true, right? Sift the evidence and have people who can back up what you're saying. But in all these institutions, those institutional values are being sacrificed because people are trying to short circuit to get to what they think is a higher objective and that corrupts the institution. 
take the justice system. You know, suppose someone stepped back and said, you know what? This is not really producing justice. So we're going to go out and assassinate people we know are criminals that have gotten off the hook. That's been done in some countries. That's sort of the right-wing version of what I think is sometimes left-wing subversion of these institutions, sacrificing the processes and the values uh, uh, mm-hmm. of, that make these instruments uh, of society to achieve certain ends. Well, speaking of the subversion of institutions and processes, let, let's talk about the 2020 election. Trump had been making some comments ahead of the election about not leaving office that you and many others had written off as a joke or hyperbole. Here's one thing that you said to the Chicago Tribune on September 11, 2020. You know liberals project all this bullshit about how— <laughs> I said that to them? You know how liberals project all this bullshit about how the president is going to stay in office and seize power? They're projecting. They're creating an incendiary situation where, the, where there will be a loss of confidence in the vote. Looking back, were they projecting and were you wrong? It, it was a mystery to me why people kept on saying that it, that uh, you know he was going to remain try to remain in office, and I thought they were setting the stage for a close election that Trump won, and claiming that he had stolen the election, and that still may be the case. But I had never heard of some plan to stay in office, and I don't know anyone else who had heard of that, except it appears Steve Bannon heard of it. Uh, you know, there was an audio that was leaked. There was a pre-election audio where he said that the president, you know, was going to stay in office. So I don't know where that came from. Uh, I think it, it could have been preparing the ground if you lose, and both sides were doing it. Did you underestimate, though, Trump's disregard for the truth, disregard for the results of the election? I underestimated how far he would take it. I thought on December 14th when I tendered my resignation, uh, the states had all certified the votes. To me, that was that was it. That was the last stop. There was no process beyond that which would allow undoing that. And I thought it was safe to leave at that point, and I was wrong. I, I, I did not expect him to take it as far as he did. With with these very wacky legal theories that no one gave any credence to. You wrote in the weeks following the election that Trump, quote, took a dangerous turn. You said he was beyond restraint and would only listen to a few sycophants who told him what he wanted to hear. Can you take us back to that moment, to that White House, to the atmosphere? Who were the sycophants and what was your role? What was going on in the days after the vote? Well, there were immediately uh, on election night, the president came downstairs early in the morning, I think it was roughly two, and started saying there was major fraud underway and pointing to the fact that votes at the end of the evening were overwhelmingly Democrat. But we had expected that all along. Everyone had been saying that's exactly what would happen. So using that as evidence of fraud made no sense to me. Uh, and call, suggesting there was major fraud as early as he did, in retrospect, uh, looks to me as if that was the plan on election night. Like if we're losing, if we think we're going to lose, we're going to claim it was fraud. But in any event, right away there were all these allegations spilling in about 
election fraud, which is what the Department of Justice has control over, which is investigating fraud, but not challenging rule changes or allegations that the rules weren't being followed. Those have to be litigated with the states. And the more we looked at the fraud allegations, the more we, we saw that they most of them were frivolous and those that weren't frivolous which were simply not substantiated by the evidence. At noon on December 1st, 2020, you had lunch with a reporter from the Associated Press. What happened at that lunch? What, what did you tell him? The president was out there continuing to say that there was major fraud and claiming that the Department of Justice uh, was asleep at the switch and wasn't doing anything about it. And by that time, I decided I really had to say something publicly. I thought it was irresponsible to keep on talking about the election being stolen unless you have some evidence of it. And there was none at that point. So I talked to the AP reporter and I told him that to date we haven't seen evidence of fraud on a scale that would have affected the outcome of the election. And I knew when I said that that I would probably be fired for it uh, because it contradicted the president publicly. But I felt that I had to do that. And uh, I had an appointment for the president later that afternoon with the chief of staff at the White House at 3 o'clock that afternoon. I told my secretary that she might have to pack up for me because I would be probably be fired. And I, and I went over and the president heard I was there and asked me to come in. So he was in a little dining room uh, that adjoins the Oval Office and he was as furious as I've ever seen him. And he confronted me and said, did you say this to the AP? And I said, I did. Uh, because it was the truth. He said there was plenty of evidence of fraud, and I went through some of them and explained in some detail as to why they didn't fly. And I told him that there are only five or six weeks to challenge a presidential election because the Constitution requires the Electoral College to meet at a date certain. And he said, you don't have much time to challenge a presidential election, and you've already wasted five of your six weeks with this nut, this crazy stuff about the Dominion machines, and you've wheeled out these this clown show of lawyers that no reputable lawyer is willing to work with. Like Sidney Powell and people like that? Like, like the crew, yeah, the dream team. <laughs> uh, so he then shifted off issues of fraud and said that I should have indicted Comey and, and so forth and so on. And I said, look, I know you're unhappy with me. I'm glad to tender my resignation. And he slammed the table. Everyone jumped and he said, accept it. So I said, okay, and was left and uh, was getting into my car down in the right outside the White House in, in my uh, FBI suburban. And all of a sudden, people started pounding on the windows. It was late at night and raining. So it was sort of this eerie thing. Everyone in the car jumped. And the president had said, Cipollone and another White House lawyer out to retrieve me and say, never mind, he's not going to fire you, and uh, would you come back in? I said, I don't think there's any use to going back in tonight. I'm going to go home, but uh, we can talk about it in the morning. So, And you decided to stay on for another two weeks. So, uh, yeah, so the, the chief of staff called me and said, look, I think there's a way through this, which is we don't want to be blindsided. Would you agree to stay on till the 20th? And I said I'd stay on as long as I felt I was needed, and I wouldn't blindside them. They, they'd know what I was thinking. And then a few weeks later, I went in and resigned, effective on December 23rd. 
What was it like working for the president as he was going out every day claiming that he'd won the election, that he clearly lost? Um, I was somewhat demoralized uh, that he was leaving office this way because I felt that what he should do was focus on all his achievements and leave with dignity. Whether he thought there was fraud or not, it obviously he'd run his course. He'd had his day in court and he lost. And other than going around the law and doing the kinds of things that later happened, that was it. So I was demoralized that he was going out the way he was. And I thought it was very unfair to all the people, especially the younger people, who had worked in the administration. It hurt them getting jobs. uh, And uh, it also hurt the Republican Party, which I thought up till then, you know, could take the high ground as the party of law and order. I reread your resignation letter. And I've I've written some resignation letters myself. Um, And... You're pretty generous toward Trump in it. You call his record historic. You say he accomplished that record, and you mention some of his major achievements in the face of relentless, implacable resistance. Why did you decide to write the letter in the way you did? Because I felt that that's what he should be talking about. That should essentially be his swan song. So in other words, you were giving him a script for himself rather than saying what you felt. So I just want to make it clear that I supported the President Trump. I liked his policies. And up until the election, I didn't have a problem with his policies. I found them very difficult to work with. And I think it took a lot of effort to keep things on track of all his his cabinet secretaries, not just me. But uh, he never really listened to his lawyers. and, And so it was hard to keep things on track. But I thought we got to the election in pretty good shape. And I was proud of the record of the administration. But I think things went off the rails after the election because I think he felt he had nothing to lose at that point. And I was trying to say, look, take the bow for what you were able to accomplish. And what I said in that letter, I believe, what's distinctive about his administration was he was unjustly treated. He was sinned against with Russiagate. That colored the whole administration. I still think that had people responded to his victory speech, which I I thought was a very diplomatic speech the night he won in 2016, that we would have seen a different Trump. And I think once he thought, you know, the FBI and the whole thing, uh, you know, that they were coming after him and and trying to uh, throw him out of office, I think that affected not only Trump, it also made all his hardcore supporters very suspicious and willing to uh, believe anything. And so... I think it's it, it fundamentally distorted our politics during his administration. So I, I felt that that was important to say, that he did fight against this Trump derangement syndrome, and he did accomplish a lot, and it was historic. You know, the, the economic growth, the fact that people who had been left out previously were starting to participate more, and, uh, you know, it it was – a tragedy that that COVID, you know, overturned that or at least arrested that progress, but it was a historic accomplishment. Okay. So you leave the White House on December 14th. Let's fast forward to January 6th, 2021. First of all, where were you that day? I was in my library at my home in Northern Virginia. And how did you get word that there was some chaos happening in the Capitol? So my public affairs officer, who had left with me, Carrie Kupek, called me and she said, do you see what's happening on the Hill? And I turned on the television. This was around three-ish. 
and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I said, put out a statement. <laughs> Not that anyone would care, but we, she put out a statement um, a little bit after that where I said, I was just sort of saying, this is outrageous, and the federal agencies have to get up there and clear, those, clear these people out. And I couldn't believe that uh, this thing had been allowed to get out of control. And then the next day I said, I think to a reporter, I forgot from which outlet, but I said that I thought the president's behavior was shameful and it was a betrayal of his office and his supporters. As it was happening, as you're watching what's going on on television, are you texting with anyone? Are you calling anyone? Did you reach out to anyone at the White House? Who were you talking to that day? I I talked to my former chief of staff and some other people who had already left the government around the time I did. Uh, And uh, I was also getting calls from people who were trapped on Capitol Hill saying, you know, where's the FBI? Where's federal law enforcement? We're trapped and we're scared. And so I tried to light a fire a little bit of a fire to get people up there. And I tried to follow events uh, from afar. I didn't have access to much information. How did you feel watching this? You know, you're someone who's served this country for decades. You're also someone that served this administration and tried as best as you could to the best of your judgment to sort of keep it on the rails. What were you feeling as you watch this scene go down? Well, I, w- I was disgusted and, and mortified and, and feeling very angry that I felt uh, this whole thing had hurt the Republican Party and hurt the reputation of the administration even more than it had been hurt before that. And, uh, you know, I was, I was angry about that. And, and I, everyone I knew in the administration was angry about that. But I also felt, I have to say, also felt that it was just a, a keystone cop exercise. The more I heard about it, you know, command center in the Willard Hotel with people like Bannon and Bernie Kerrick and Giuliani and these people going up there, you know, dressed, you know, for like their military troopers and so forth. Uh, you know, there wasn't, going, there wasn't a genuine threat in my mind to overthrowing – as far as overthrowing the government is concerned. It was just a circus. But that is true of a lot of things that Trump arranges. And I felt, you know, one of the sub-themes of the administration was that when the president runs into people who don't agree with him or, or, you know, this has been taken as far as it can go legally, he tries these little jury-rigged operations with these people who are not in government and, and they are, are, are frivolous. And uh, so the whole thing to me was a big embarrassment. There's been a lot of language used by different factions of the press to describe that day. Some people call it a coup. Some people call it an insurrection. Some people call it an act of terror. Some people call it a riot. And and all those words are kind of litmus test about where people fall politically. How would you describe, A, what happened that day, and B, the president's role in it? I would say that the it was a riot that got out of control and— uh, breached the federal government building, the House of the People's House, Congress, and and breached it and were attacking police. And uh, a group of them were, not obviously all the demonstrators. 
I would say it was an effort to intimidate Congress and, and the vice president. And uh, I've said that I, you know, I haven't heard words from the president that I would consider incitement under the law because that's a very high bar because of our First Amendment. And it should be a high bar. But uh, I did feel that he was morally responsible for it because he led these people to believe that there was something they could do, that something could happen on Capitol Hill that would reverse the election and there's something they could do up there uh, involving pressuring uh, the vice president and Congress that would make that difference. And that set the stage for this. Were you glad to see Congress impeach him for what happened that day? Uh, no, I wasn't. Actually, I think someone asked me if I would vote for impeachment. I said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think impeaching people after they're out of office is, I'm not sure it's the proper use of the impeachment power, but I think it's better for the country to move on. You joined an administration worried about a constitutional crisis, right? And then on January 6th, here you have a mob of people sicked on the Capitol, inspired, let's say, if not incited by the president, trying to stop the official counting of the vote. You have someone swinging a Confederate flag inside the Capitol building for the first time, I think, in American history. You have rioters there wearing Nazi emblems. And you have them inspired by a president who said to his supporters, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Was that actually the constitutional crisis come to fruition? Um, you know, I, I, as I say, I don't think it was a constitutional crisis in the sense of the constitutional, the Constitution failing and, 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 you know, the Biden administration actually being stopped from taking office. But it was a shameful, it was a shameful episode. It was a, sh- a shameful riot. And uh, the president certainly precipitated it. After the break, what Bill Barr thinks about that raid on Mar-a-Lago. We'll be right back. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show, where we expose how patent trolls shake down innocent victims using legal loopholes and abuse of the system. Hello, I notice you've been sued for patent infringement. I'd be happy to represent you for a price. Just remember, your defense cost is going to run around $3 million. Wow. The patent we were sued on had, as I recall, 113 claims. And every claim was almost the same. In other words, one claim would say, a computer accessing another computer to unlock software. And the next thing would be, software unlocked by one computer accessing another computer. That was just the same thing over and over 113 times, phrased a little bit differently each time. Since it took us four years and $2 million to overturn one of those sentences, they could put us through this for the rest of our lives. For more with Austin Meyer, including the details of his investigation into patent trolls and why none of us are safe, check out episode 326 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Let's talk about some of the recent events that have taken place around the January 6th investigation. You know, the Justice Department recently subpoenaed former White House counsel Pat Cipollini, who you mentioned before. And here's what you said when they did that. 
It definitely is a significant event. It changes my view of what's been going on. This suggests to me that they're taking a hard look at the group at the top, including the president and the people immediately around him who were involved in this. How has your view changed? Well, you know, the the reaction against January 6th up until more re- more recently seemed to be focused all on the the lowest level people, the people who breached the Capitol, and they were hundreds of them being indicted or charged sometimes for misdemeanors, and a lot of effort was being put into that. And it seemed to me, I didn't see any signs of them pursuing the theory that people, the president or and or people around him were involved in some conspiracy to stop the count on the Hill, which is at, at the heart of it what people are worried about and looking at. But I had seen no sign that that was being pursued. So you had the January 6th committee acting like it was a criminal process and talking about crimes and behaving very much like it was determining whether there was criminality and justice sort of sitting back, which is usually the other way around. Justice is in the lead looking at criminality and Congress sort of waits for that to happen. But the fact that they have gone to subpoena the uh, to the, uh, the White House counsel and, and others makes me feel that they're at least taking a serious look at it. Well, the other major thing that happened was on August 8th, the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago, the president's private club and home. And since then, we've learned that they seized a bunch of boxes of classified documents. It's a pretty dramatic thing to search the home of a former president. You know, based on what you know and based on your trust in the FBI right now, how do you think we should be thinking about that event? Should we be worried about political motivation or should we think, wait, there's there's really something here now? Well, the first thing is I think a lot of the attacks on the FBI are over the top because a decision like this is not going to be made by the FBI. And in fact, I don't think the FBI would come and pound the table pushing a decision like this. In this kind of situation, the decision that it's best to go in and search and obtain those documents after being jerked around for a year and a half, and that's the way the department would look at it, would be made at the Department of Justice by subordinates of the AG and ultimately signed off on by the AG. And the FBI would be told to go and execute it. So all this idea that the FBI is the problem here, I, I think, are mispl- you know, it's misplaced. That's number one. Number two is to, you know, I am just, the main reason I'm sort of irritated at the whole episode is because it actually strengthens Biden and hurts the Republican Party going into the midterms. I think one of the reasons people sort of sense a little bit of loss of momentum, we'll all see how it turns out, but is because the focus has once again returned to President Trump and his persona and his modus operandi instead of the pocketbook issues that had been the focus before. So I think this has been a bad development for the Republicans' hopes in the midterms. And um, so that's why I find it frustrating. This political fallout is, is, is not helpful. As to why it was done, you know, I think everyone is reaching conclusions that are premature because there are two bits of important information that we need to have. One is, you know, what are the nature of the highly classified information? How sensitive were these documents? And the second is, 
what is the evidence, if any, of active conceit by the president or those around him in Mar-a-Lago to mislead the government? And until you answer those two questions, it's hard for me to say whether or not it was justified. And I think people who are taking a knee-jerk position on both sides, really, should wait and see what that evidence is. Why do you think Trump would be holding on to these documents? I, I don't know. And and that's why it, it's, it's hard to explain. That's why I'm interested in what kind of documents they were. Now, there's been an effort made to suggest these were Russiagate documents. And if they were Russiagate documents, one might understand you know, some understanding as to why the president might want them for reference. But uh, I think, based on what I've read, it appears that they went far beyond Russiagate documents. And those, that's the kind of information we need to have. How do you think this is going to play out? Do you think the government's going to bring charges against Trump? So my view is there are two different issues. One you know, are the elements necessary to bring charges present? Can it be justified sort of as a matter of law? And then the second question is the prudential judgment, which is, do you want to use the criminal justice process in this context, given the totality of circumstances, including the fact this is a former president, including the fact that this will be very incendiary in the country? Uh, And I think to take the latter step, that is to say, okay, we can make out a case and we should bring a case. I think the attorney general will require you know, some you know, exacerbating circumstances here, like very sensitive information and information that shows that the president knew what he was doing and there was misleading of the government on that issue. Yeah. When you joined the administration, and, and we've talk, been talking about it in this conversation, you were very concerned about you know, the capture or semi-capture of the administrative state. In other words, that the muscles and mechanisms of the government were being used, at least in part, by people to carry out a political witch hunt against a president they didn't like. Yep. Right? Yes. M- much of the GOP base believes this. Many conservatives I know believe this, and understandably so. And so then they look at a day like the search in Mar-a-Lago and say, this is just further evidence of exactly that. How can you, Bill Barr, who have said, you know, Russiagate wasn't real and these investigations and the, that all of it was sort of trumped up and shouldn't have really happened in the first place. Why should we now believe you that this search and the subpoena of Cipollone are justified? I didn't say they were, you know, I haven't reached a conclusion on that until I get the the information I, I said. But what happened in Russiagate essentially created the condition where people are going to think the worst. Exactly. Yeah, and not give the FBI or the Justice Department the benefit of the doubt. So what do you say to conservatives who say, why should we possibly trust these institutions to prosecute people, let's say, who protested on January 6th, or agents of the state going after a president they so obviously despise? Why should we trust them anymore? You still give them the benefit of the doubt. But many other people in your party don't. Well, the the Russiagate thing, I think, to the extent the FBI was misused, uh, was was decisions made toward by by high level officials in the in uh, the FBI. I don't think that Chris Ray is of that 
is that type of leader, nor do I think the people around Chris Ray are those types of leaders. I think problems, there are problems in the FBI, but it's not that. It's not that Chris Ray is going to wake up and say, you know, how do I, you know, how do I throw the FBI's weight around to interfere in the political process? Just the opposite. I think he's very cautious about that. Um, and in the department, it's, 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 uh, spotty. You know, there's some people who are, who in the career ranks that are partisans and can't check it at the door, and there are others that do. Um, With respect, that's that's sort of an unsatisfying answer to the Republican who I'm sure comes up to you all the time. You're one of the most prominent conservatives in the country and says, why should I trust these people anymore, Bill? Well, what's the alternative? My my message to all these people, you know, something I'm pretty tired of from, from the right is the constant pandering to outrage and frustrate people's frustrations and picking and picking and picking at that sore without trying to channel those feelings in a, in a constructive direction. In my opinion, Ronald Reagan was a great populist, not because he followed, you know, the frustrated instincts and the outrage of the people that many people who supported him, but because he channeled it and it was constructive about it. So I always say, you know, what's the alternative? We have these institutions that need reform, and the first step is to win an election uh, with with a decisive majority that allows you to put a program into effect and deal with some of these problems going forward and fix them. And that is not done by uh, throwing fuel on the fire and of outrage uh, on, on one side of the equation while the other side does the same thing on their side. That leads to stalemate, and I don't see anything productive coming out of it. I think we should basically try to persuade people, and I think they're there. I think, you know, I think people like Yunkin um, have shown that the Republican Party is a potential majority party. And I think there are a lot of yeah, people— Yunkin, the governor, the governor in Virginia. Yeah, who, who won the race in Virginia, you know. And the problem with, with Trump is that it's all about running just a base election, whip up your base, get your base all upset, get them outraged, and turn them out at the polls. Both sides do that. That is a prescription for continued— hostility within the country and demoralization of the country and uh, an impasse in the country. And the first side to break out of that by returning, restoring politics to what it should be, uh, which is the politics of, of trying to capture a majority of the people through persuasion uh, and a decisive enough majority to change things, uh, that's what we should be focused on. And we're not doing that right now. That's not Trump's approach. I want to talk about the future of your party, the Republican Party, which seems like if they just remained normal and stood in place, that they could win bigly, as Trump might put it. But instead, you know, I think it's hopeful to point to someone like Glenn Youngkin and say that could be the future. But it seems to me that Trump still carries the day. His endorsement still matters a great deal. The amount of pandering that you see to him, especially from first-time candidates, is unbelievable. And it seems like 
The old idea, right, was that you would surround Trump with smart people and they would sort of keep him in line. But the opposite seems to have happened. It seems like the GOP is now, you could argue, pretty fully Trumpified. And I'm wondering how you see it. So first, I I think you're right that right now, I think, is a tremendous opportunity for the Republican Party. The the defining dynamic of our period right now is the sharp leftward turn of the Democratic Party into, in my view, a radical progressivism. That creates a huge opportunity because they move so far to the left, that allows the Republicans to come in as they did in 1980 and seize a decisive majority. And uh, that enabled Reagan to win two terms and and Bush a term. And it also forced the Democrats to a moderate Democrat like Clinton, who ran in the center, ran the country in the center. So it's a huge opportunity. And instead, we, we are purging the party and starting civil wars in the party over whether people are rhinos. Well, this is how I see the Republican Party. There's never been more consistent conservatism within the Republican Party as there is today, at least not in my lifetime. The idea that there are people that are rhinos, you know, that are ideological rhinos, they really don't support Republican principles is simply not true. Uh, And what the president is defining as rhinos and why he's starting these civil wars in various states in the Republican Party is because people – they're Republicans. They're true blue Republicans and conservatives. It's just that they have a problem with Trump personally. And Trump is is doing something that I can't think of any great leader in the past doing. He controls, in my view, he has sort of hardcore baked in maybe a third of the Republican Party. But what makes him powerful is is that this is a man who's willing to say that if you don't do things my way and if I'm not the nominee, I'm taking my ball and going home. I will sabotage anyone anyone you put up. And he not only does that in the presidential election, he'll do that in state elections. It's my person or it's sabotage. And uh, this, you know, this pursuit of a personal agenda and personal power is, is weakening the Republican Party at a time where it could have historic uh, victory and make historic progress in, quote, making America great again. And, you know, I say to the people who want to make America great again, making America great, what will it take to do that? Okay? You don't do it just by making your base matter and matter and matter. It means winning big victories. And Reagan's approach in 1980 was unifying the party and bringing over classical liberals who were upset at the turn of the Democratic Party in the the 60s and 70s. And we should be doing the same thing now. And I know a lot of people who would be open to not voting Democrat for the first time in their life. They're looking at a party that seems unbelievably out of touch. I mean, unappealing is, is an understatement. And yet then they look across the aisle and they see people like Carrie Lake, who could become the governor of Arizona, peddling Trump's lies and talking about how Biden lost the election and the election was corrupt. You've not minced words about the 2020 election. You've said the idea that the 2020 election was stolen is bullshit, a favorite word of yours. Why are so few other Republicans willing to just say it plain and straight? 
because of the, the tactic that, that, that Trump is using to exert control over the Republican Party, which is extortion. If, if it's not me, I'm going to ruin uh, your election chances by, by you know, telling my base to sit home, and I'll sabotage whoever you nominate other than me. And, uh, you know, that, that shows what he's all about. He's all about himself. Well, I know you weren't a never-Trumper. Um, you were for Jeb Bush, I think, at first, and then ultimately came around to Trump. But were the never-Trumpers right in that key insight that Trump was going to turn to crap everything that he touched? Wasn't this exactly their fear? Well, the way I would put it is this. I, they were wrong, in my opinion, because I think— Although we've been sort of harping on the warts of Trumpism, I think the greatest threat to the country is the radical progressive movement and what it's degenerated into. And I think in 2016, had there been another Democratic administration, I was concerned that we'd dig even a deeper hole that would be much harder to get out out of. And I think Trump did serve a historic purpose. Uh, As I say in my book, he was sort of the wrecking ball and uh, against uh, progressive excess. People were mad about it, and they wanted some a no-nonsense person who would sort of be a wrecking ball, and he did that. What I'm saying now is we need something different moving forward. And I give him credit for identifying the frustrations and, the, and willing to call out some of the uh, uh, progressive excess that other people were cowering about then. So I think they were wrong because I did, do think that he did stop the progressives march to some extent, or at least arrest it. And part of that was in the Supreme Court. As I say, you know, I would have supported the Republican president and Trump once he made clear the kind of people he would report to the courts, but just on that basis alone. So he was worth it for the court? Yes, but more than the court. I mean, I think his accomplishments go beyond that. But uh, if you're going to call the question on Trump, the time to do it was after, you, you know, have to— you know, once he was out of office, not not while he was there accomplishing good things that he did. And and that is why I, I have said, much to everyone's surprise, that, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I would not. If, if Trump is running against the progressive Democrat, uh, you know, I, I don't like that choice. It's a lesser of two evils choice. But I, I wouldn't say at this stage, I mean, I, we have to see more about what comes out of some of these investigations. But I wouldn't say I wouldn't vote for Trump that I would allow, sit back and be happy with a progressive Democrat winning. So 2024, we have Biden v. Trump or Kamala v. Trump, or Gavin Newsom v. Trump. You're voting Trump. Right now, I would say yes. Is there anything that could happen to change that? You know, I don't want to speculate about what might happen to change it. We'll have to see some, you know, some some of the way these investigations turn out. You came of age politically under Reagan. You served under George H. W. Bush. Both of those men are now dead, and and really, so is the party they inhabited. Who do you see? as the ideal standard bearer for the future of the party. You mentioned Glenn Youngkin before. I'm wondering how you feel about the man whose name is on every conservative lips these days, which is Ron DeSantis. Well, you know, I first I've said I, I like a lot of these guys who were, who, who were running um, and uh, know some of them much better than others. 
I don't know Ron DeSantis that well, but I've been impressed with you know his record down in Florida. But I like I like a lot of them, and my view is I'm going to support whoever has the best chance of uh, pushing Trump aside. My dad is a conservative and a big admirer of Scalia. And one of the things that I grew up learning about was just how close Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were, um, sort of famously friends and, and, and friends across the political aisle. That seems almost inconceivable today, a world in which the homes of Supreme Court justices are getting protested, the names of the FBI agents who searched Trump's home are leaked to the public, and then they're being targeted by Trump supporters. Is there any going back to that world where there could be good faith disagreement and politics weren't the politics of total personal destruction? Or have we left that world totally behind? Well, if we've left it behind, I'm not, I don't think this ends well for the country. I don't see, I don't see that this leads to any future for the country, and I think we have to we have to return to that if we're going to have a future. And, and in my book, I try to say, you know, I put I, I put this on the doorstep of the progressive, you know, the, what I refer to as the radical progressives. I put this at their, door, you know, this is their responsibility. They're the ones I think who have sharply shifted. I, I, I think the political model before this was, you know, this, the liberal democratic spectrum where, you know, you have right and left, but we're all within the liberal democratic, you know, Anglo-American political tradition, and we're fighting for the majority and, 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 and so forth. And what we've moved to, I think, is, is, a, is a bipolar system that's more typical of revolutionary uh, countries where you have a party like the Marxists or some other totalitarian party, trying to take power. It's an all or nothing. And anything goes. It's war by other means. And that's where we are. And as I say, it doesn't end well. And I think those of us who are traditional conservatives, Reagan conservatives, you know, I grew up on Bill Buckley and so forth, we, we believe in, in the... Uh, Anglo-American system of politics where we have a First Amendment that allows citizens to debate and come to uh, some, some consensus uh, for the public good. You know, one of the things that bothers me is that people talk about democracy and what the threat to democracy. Well, what did the framers think was the threat to democracy? In, in, in Federalist 10, Madison basically says, you know, it, it's, it's when – People use democracy when, when the majority uses democracy to oppress the minority. When, when someone takes a transient 51 percent majority and tries to ram things down the throat of the other 49 percent. And that, now we're finding ourselves sort of oscillating between those two, two worlds. You get 51 votes, good. You know, Obamacare. You get 51 votes, now this. And shove it down people's throat. Whereas the institutions that we've had before this were meant to modulate that and require some form of consensus and incremental change and allow people to build up some consensus for an approach. Things move slowly, but that's not good enough for revolutionaries who you know, want to tear things down or change things instantaneously. And uh, we're taking out, you know, we're, like when people talk about doing away with the filibuster and things, that takes an that'll even pour more fuel on on the on the fire. So that's that's I think what the, the the basic challenge we face right now. 
After the break, crime, the death penalty, religion, and a few more light topics with two-time Attorney General Bill Barr. We'll be right back. There's so much more to Jewish history than persecution. I know it's sometimes hard to believe that when you talk to Jews, but trust me, there is. And in Jewish History Unpacked, the newest podcast from the people who brought you Unpacking Israeli History, you'll find out about some of the craziest, most amazing, but lesser known stories that fill the Jewish history books. Given that the Jewish people's history goes back for millennia and spans continents and epochs, there are so many stories you just won't want to miss. You'll end up asking yourself questions that you never thought of, like, was Napoleon actually a hero for the Jews? And why were there so many suicide pacts in the first century? Hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab will fill you in on what happened, how it happened, and why all of these ancient stories still matter. You can find Jewish History Unpacked wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bill, you were the chief law enforcement officer of the U.S., during a historic spike in violent crime across the country. In 2020, murder across America rose by almost 30%, the biggest rise in U.S. history. And experts can't seem to agree on why it happened. So I'd like for you to explain it to us. I was was actually a chief law enforcement officer during two such periods. In 91, 92 was the highest the crime rate's ever been in our country. It had flattened out. It it, it, It had been going sharply up for uh, 30 years. And then we halved it, 22 consecutive years from 1992 to 2014. The crime rate came down 22 consecutive years and was cut in half. And then it started creeping back up again. Trump pushed it back down again. And then 2020, the lid came off. And I think it's because, I think it's obvious why it is, which is the return to revolving door justice, the kind of thing that story after story comes out of New York. People with tremendous criminal histories are are let loose and they commit more crimes. That's always the the primary source of, of violent crime increases, the failure to keep violent criminals off the streets. And that's why it's going back up again. One of the things that is very in vogue right now Um, in liberal circles is the idea of abolishing prisons, the idea of decriminalizing crime. But you say, no, we we have an under-incarceration problem. Is it that we don't have enough people in American prisons, or is it that the wrong people are in prison? Well, you know, the left likes to be very severe with white-collar criminals, even though many white-collar criminals, you know, it's all retribution. You're not they're, you know, they're not going to go out necessarily and do it again, but they want strong penalties on them. So they're, they're not, they don't pose a threat of violence. But violent criminals, generally with long criminal or repeat violent offenders, generally commit more crimes and they should be in prison for a long time. The idea of, de- of, of going soft on crime is not a new idea. This is what happened in the 50s and 60s. And as I said, crime skyrocketed. Uh, between 1964 and uh, 1992. And it started coming down, it started flattening out under Reagan, but it quintupled in those 30 years. And it was almost twice as high as it is today. And what happened was we started putting the violent criminals back in prison. During that time, as crime went up, prisons emptied out. 
Then in 1992, we started putting people back in prison, violent offenders, and crime started dropping. So the prison population during that 22 years doubled. Crime cut in half. Uh, it's pretty simple arithmetic. No one has figured out how to stop violent crime other than taking the violent criminal and putting them in prison for a period of time. So what did you think of Trump's efforts at criminal justice reform, which many across the political spectrum praised him for? I was I was okay with it. You know, I, I would have preferred not tinkering around with some of the mandatory minimum sentences and drugs, but I don't, you know, they were nipping around the edges. I still felt it was still a very tough criminal justice system. And and I'm all for making sure that we're not using prison space for people who we don't need to keep in prison. And what I what I liked about this is the people were paying their debt and already had a track record in prison and were being productive and were preparing themselves for future and having following opportunities to prepare themselves for release. And that's the time to to err on the side of, of uh, you know, rehabilitation. What I don't like is at the front end, after the person, right after the person's committed a crime, saying, oh, well, you know, let's go soft on this guy because, you know, maybe, maybe we can rehabilitate him. I like to see evidence of rehabilitation before, you know, we let them out. Some on the left consider you the architect of mass incarceration in America. And, you know, the U.S. has the largest prison population in the world. We have the highest per capita incarceration rate, I think, right behind the U.S. is China. Can you speak directly to those critics? Well, I think mass incarceration is a, is a loaded term because the use of the word mass suggests it's indiscriminate. You know, I just throw, throw people in prison. What I've said is if you target the repeat violent offenders, which statistically and in reality are the people who will continue committing violent crime, the overwhelm there's two kinds of violent crime. There's crimes of passion that just happen and they're not frequently likely to repeat. Then there's predatory violence. The vast majority of predatory violence is committed by repeat violent offenders. Maybe one, one and a half percent of the population is involved in this and they're career criminals and they they commit the crimes. And unless you identify those people and keep them off the street, you know, they're going to victimize people. And the other thing is, the only way to turn it around early is to get the juveniles early and show them there are really consequences to what they do and treat it seriously at the beginning. The more you slap the juvenile offender on the wrist and show them there's no consequences, they're embarked on a career of crime. So you're not doing them any favors. You're, in fact, putting them on the trajectory of becoming a career criminal. So, you know, a tougher system is ultimately the best system for protecting society. And it's not, it's not indiscriminate. It's taking people who are committing crimes. Now, like all other difficult problems, the left says, oh, well, let's, let's address the root causes. Well, that's fine, but we have a hard time really identifying what the root causes are and dealing with them effectively. But even if we could, that takes a generation or more. And there's blood on the streets today. How do you protect people today? And all efforts you have at social rehabilitation and protecting neighborhoods and improving education and attracting jobs in the inner city, that's not going to work if those places are shooting galleries and run by gangs. So law and order is the foundation of any steps to address root causes. And the job of the Department of Justice is enforcement of the law. You know, 
ameliorating conditions that contribute to crime is not an alternative to strong law enforcement. They're not mutually, uh, you know, antithetical. But the left presents addressing root causes as an alternative. It's not. There's been a movement in recent years to fill district attorney offices with people who fashion themselves as criminal justice reformers. Some of them want to just dramatically decrease the amount of people in jails and prisons. Some of them go so far as to not charging criminals for committing different crimes. And here I'm thinking of people like Chesa Boudin, recently recalled DA in San Francisco, or Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, or the DA here in LA. And many people have pointed to this phenomenon as part of the reason that there's been such a boom in violent crime, especially in these cities. But then other people push back and say violent crime also rose in cities and towns where there aren't progressive DAs. So what do you think? I mean, they're a major factor in in crime increases. I think there, there are various levels. Number one is how good is the state criminal justice system? You know, do they provide for pretrial detention of very dangerous criminals and so forth, before, you know, before trial and other things like that? And if, and if the state has a strong system and strong prosecutors and so forth, the crime rates are not as out of control. But if you have a weak system compounded by these progressive DAs who think they have a broader agenda uh, than, than, you know, catching and punishing criminals, then uh, – you know, that substantially increases the the crime rates. So, you know, I think it's inexcusable. My very first speech as AG on this round, I said this was a major problem. Under your leadership, you brought back the federal use of capital punishment after almost two decades without a single execution. During your final days in office, I think the Trump administration executed the most federal prisoners since World War II. I'd love for you to explain your views on the death penalty and how you square them with your deeply held religious views as a Catholic. Well, first, the the delay of the death penalty, which was reenacted by Congress, the delay in imposing it was because of difficulties in the chemicals that were used for injection. And when I came into office... The, the Bureau of Prisons had found, you know, an approach, a means of execution that passed constitutional muster and was able to secure the chemicals. So the whole reason for the so-called moratorium wasn't because of opposition to the death penalty. It was because of the impracticality of actually carrying it out because we didn't have a regime that passed muster and we didn't have access to the right chemicals. Once that was solved, there was no longer a barrier to, ca- to carrying out the death penalty. My view as attorney general is, number one, when Congress passes and juries impose sentences, the attorney general can't say, well, he w- the jury sentenced him and the judge sentenced him to 15 years. I'm going to only make him serve two. The AG is duty bound to carry out the sentence of the court. And it's the same for the death penalty. I can't say that's the sentence, but I'm not going to carry out because I oppose the death penalty. If I personally had moral qualms about the death penalty, then I shouldn't hold the office of attorney general where your duty is to carry out the sentence of the court. So I was carrying out the sentences of the court. I thought it was the right thing to do as attorney general. You know, there were 64 people on death row when I came in and those that had long since exhausted their appeal. uh, I 
we had 13 who had committed crimes against very vulnerable victims, children and others. Uh, it was time that the sentence be carried out. Now, as I explain in my book, there's a lot of confusion over, to what, the, over what the Catholic position is on this. The Catholic Church has consistently taught for 2,000 years that the state has the right to impose the death penalty and it's not, quote, intrinsically evil. So the church teaches that certain things like rape and abortion are intrinsically evil, which means they can never be justified under any set of circumstances. And they've, ne- they've taught the opposite about the death penalty. It's not intrinsically evil. <clears throat> they've said that it's essentially it's a prudential judgment as to whether it's appropriate under the circumstances. And that's left up to individual Catholics as to make, to make, that, to make that judgment, take, giving deference to uh, the judgment of church leaders. But you're not bound by their judgment on prudential matters. You're only bound by their judgment as to whether something is intrinsically evil. So the idea that the church has said it's, you know, that it's wrong, meaning you can't do it under any circumstances, is simply incorrect. So I came to the same conclusion as Justice Scalia, which is I gave consideration to the views of the Pope, and I disagreed with his prudential judgment. Hearing you talk about the chemicals makes me feel kind of physically sick. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, A, believe in paying attention to that kind of visceral reaction, but B, you know, as someone who is skeptical of the power of government and the power of the state, the idea that we would give to the government the power to pour deadly chemicals into the veins of an American citizen, even a terrible person who's committed horrible crimes until they die, just makes me deeply uncomfortable because I am so skeptical of the government getting it wrong. Well, I know you feel very strongly about, you know, limits on governmental power, especially the federal government. So how do you square your view on this with your conservatism, really? Well, because uh, we, we take a lot of time and effort and put a lot of resources into making sure the decisions are correct. So, you know, it, it t- right now it takes over 20 years to carry out a sentence because of all the appeals and all the reviews and all the arguments that are raised. But I haven't heard anyone say that the people who we executed were factually innocent. They committed atrocious crimes that wrecked people's lives, wrecked the lives of families, and uh, snuffed out the dreams of fellow human beings. And... I think that there is an intuition in, in people, in societies, in America, that the most atrocious crimes call for the highest punishment, which is the imposition of death. That is the judgment of our political community. And we take a lot of pains to make sure it is not abused and carried out unfairly. So as long as that's the judgment, and by the way, it's not just the government, it's the jury. A jury is an institution which is the people, a jury of one's peers, and they are the ones that make the ultimate decision. And their hands are not tied. They are allowed to consider anything. 
you gave a speech in 2019 at Notre Dame that I read at the time and have since reread. It's a very powerful talk about religious liberty and freedom. In the speech, you argue that not only is religious liberty an imperative to free government, but that religion itself is what protects us from the dangers of freedom, that religion promotes moral discipline and virtue that's needed to support a free government and free institutions. And you quote our founders like John Adams. We have no government, he said, armed with the power which is capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. I want to just read that one more time. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. So what do we do when we have a constitution in which religion is on the decline and secularism is on the rise? Well, the framers would have said that that if that persists for a long time and people aren't able to control themselves and govern themselves and sink into licentiousness and so forth, that we're not going to have a free society. The government will continue, you know, will adopt rules and all our decisions will be made for us by the government. And what enables limited government, and this is the basic message, what makes limited the whole idea of limited government was predicated on religion, that religion uh, would allow people to govern themselves. And as long as people could govern themselves, then you could have limited government. But at the end of the day, you will have government. And if it's not self-government, it'll be you know, the coercive power of the state. And I think one of the problems we have today is that you know, I think I think we're a, a more pluralistic society. We're, we're a more you know religiously fractured society. Uh, people's values vary widely. We don't you know in 1960, 95 percent of the country self-identified as Christian, believing Christians, and that's no longer the case. And I think we have to understand that in a pluralistic society, we have to live and let live which means we have to, in my view, stop trying to run these schools like these monolithic state institutions that are neutral as to values and morality, but allow people to choose through vouchers where they want their children educated. And if they want their kids brought up in a religious tradition, allow them to have their school, uh, their children attend those. This is what they do in England. This is what they do in Europe. They reach that modus vivendi. And here we are where we supposedly fled from Europe to have religious freedom here. And we say, look, you want to you raise your kid within a religious tradition, you essentially have to pay through the nose uh, in a private school. But otherwise, we're going to go to a public school. And the problem today is that a lot of what's being taught in public schools is antithetical to, to traditional religious belief. So I think I'm for diversity real diversity. You know, the left talks about diversity, but I'm for real diversity. I think that'll enrich education. I think it will, uh, you know, it'll not hurt the melting pot that we have. You know, you look at parochial schools today and religious schools, they, they raise patriotic citizens who function in a pluralistic society very well. So I think the answer is let people make the choice 
and let's see what happens. Do you think that Americans are increasingly trying to get out of politics what they may have gotten once out of religion and religious identity? I, I think there's no question about it. I think that you know, modern progressive, secular progressivism, you know, what I'm referred to as the radical progressives uh, view it as it's like in a religion and it has that intensity. This is what has made our politics so venomous because the the opponents of the progressive forces aren't just wrong, okay? They're not misinformed or wrong. They're evil because they're standing in the way of the salvation of the human race. And, you know, the means justify the ends. They have to be rolled over. And this contributes to the dehumanization of one's political adversaries and so forth. Talk about religious wars. These are... These are like religious wars, the hatred that's involved in it. After the break, the most awkward situation he ever witnessed in the White House and more lightning round questions for Bill Barr. Bill Barr, you ready for a lightning round? Sure. Okay. Did you ever consider resigning from your post because of something you were asked to do? No. Uh, I considered resigning from my post because it was such a pain in the ass. Uh, you know, Trump's tweeting and so forth was such a pain in the ass because it gave the, the left an opportunity to argue that I was doing things because Trump wanted them done that way. And it was just a pain in the ass. I kept on telling him not to tweet about the Department of Justice. But he never told, you know, he never told me to do anything that I, you know, would resign over. Who's your favorite Democrat, living or dead? Well, living, I would say, you know, I like Joe Manchin. Uh, <laughs> but there's so many good Democrats, you know, that I've dealt with over time and in history that, uh, you know, that's, that's a hard one to do. You graduated from Horace Mann. Would you send a child of yours or a grandchild of yours to Horace Mann today? No. Who's your favorite saint? St. Augustine. Why? He was probably the most intelligent <laughs> of all the saints. Uh, but he, you know, he led the church through a period where it was still, uh, you know, the Roman Empire, hostile Roman Empire. Uh, and the church was just getting its footing. And so it was, in a, it was in a situation where there was hostility to religion, Christian religion. And I think his assessment of uh, of human nature, uh, you know, the disposition to do wrong, uh, was sort of accurate. Who's your favorite person to disagree with? A favorite person to disagree with? Like, who's your RBG? If you're a Scalia, who's your RBG? Well, I, I would say, you know, I always respected uh, Justice Breyer. I thought he was a very intelligent and incisive and... Uh, I thought he was a formidable jurist. What's the most surprising thing about Donald Trump? That one would think that an executive would have a better idea how to operate with people and, and manage people. And he's a poor manager of people. What's the most awkward situation you ever witnessed in the White House? <laughs> awkward situation... 
I, w- I would say it was on June 1st where the president was bellowing at a number of his cabinet secretaries and especially the military guys, uh, the DOD secretary and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and calling all of us fucking losers at the top of his lungs. Fill in the blank with an adjective. George H.W. Bush was? A great leader. Rudy Giuliani is? A bad influence on Trump. (laughs) Bob Mueller. He served his country ever since becoming Marine uh, during the Vietnam War. And he served the country honorably. And um, he should not have accepted the job of special counsel. Is it possible that Jeffrey Epstein didn't die by suicide? No. What's your biggest regret? That that the president was, um, you know, close to taking advice from his advisors. In 2016, he got into real trouble with the grab him by the pussy comment. And he behaved himself for a few weeks and he just squeezed through. This time he felt he knew better than everybody else and so he didn't follow anybody's advice. What's the most important book you've ever read? Well, the most important book is the Bible. And uh, after that I would say, you know, St. Augustine's selected works, those are the most important. Who's going to be president in 2024? (laughs) Um, If I had to bet, I would probably uh, bet DeSantis. You play the bagpipe. What's your favorite song to play on the bagpipe? Pipe Major McLean's Farewell to Oban. (laughs) (laughs) Attorney General Barr, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you, Mary. My thanks to Attorney General Barr for coming on the show. You should check out his book. It's called One Damn Thing After Another. My thanks as always to you for listening. Did you learn something? Did you find any of your assumptions challenged? Did you hear things, many things that you disagreed with? Good. That's the point. Share this episode with people in your community and use it to have an honest debate of your own. And if you want to support our work, subscribe to our newsletter at commonsense.news. If you head over there, you can find the entire transcript of this conversation. See you next time. This is Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer. By now, you've probably heard of my podcast, The President's Daily Brief. We travel around the world talking about the most pressing news of the day. And the goal is to take complicated issues, both here and abroad, and make them really simple to understand. We also talk about solutions to the problems that we discuss, just like the actual brief delivered to the president each day in the Oval Office. So download and subscribe to The President's Daily Brief, available on all major podcast platforms starting at 6 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday.
It'd be a pleasure if you joined us.